0: Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Lord, we surrender ourselves to your mighty word this evening. Your powerful word that brought forth creation. Your life-giving word that breathes life into our cold, hard hearts. Your sustaining word that provides what we need daily and gives light to our paths. Speak to us this evening. Challenge us where we need challenging. Encourage us where we need encouraging. Excite us where we have grown apathetic. We pray that you might be glorified in our lives. And may these words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please do sit down. On the thirty-first of March, nineteen ninety-five, talented Man United footballer Eric Cantona sits down and faces the world's media. It was a press conference to break his silence. You see, two months earlier, the mercurial Manchester United player had attacked a Crystal Palace fan just after being sent off. He was banned from playing football uh, for a period of eight months uh, and received a community service order from the courts. And the press had assembled. What was he going to say? Was he going to apologize? Was he he going to beg for forgiveness? Did he have a message for young fans out there telling them, don't do this, don't copy me? Would Would he maybe maintain that he'd do it again, given the chance? or suggest that his actions were not disproportionate um, to the racist abuse that, that he'd received from the fan. I won't try and do his accent, but Cantona takes a sip of water and speaks into the microphone. When the seagulls follow the trawler, it is because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And that's it. That's it. He stands up and he walks out. And no one knows what to make of it. It's it's totally unexpected. It it was probably a, a reference to the gathered journalists who were looking for a story. But it was totally left field and not what anyone was anticipating. Well, we're going to look at something that Jesus said tonight. Something that I think was equally unexpected. Something completely remarkable. The people who were there at the time just wouldn't have seen it coming. We had the passage read earlier uh, this evening. And, and if you've been a Christian for some time, then what we're about to look at could be a very familiar passage. It's, it's a great one to do in Sunday school. Um, in fact, just a few weeks ago, I told this to our under fives uh, at dad club. And I had great fun building a, a Duplo house um, and then taking the roof off and, and lowering the Lego men in. But maybe it's the first time you've come across this story. The theme for our sermon series in Mark this summer is who is this man? Well, whatever preconceptions you bring about this story this evening, my my prayer is that you'd be wowed and astonished by the character and the person of Jesus. I pray that the Holy Spirit might cut to our hearts and convict us of our helpless need before an almighty God. So let's dive in. Let's have a look at the passage by digging through it, and then lowered the the mat that the man was lying on. Well, Jesus has been on a preaching tour. He's gone to some of the neighboring villages and towns, and now he's back in his hometown. We've read for the last few weeks that he's called some of his disciples. He's healed some of the sick, and now he's back home, and, and word has got out, and everyone wants a piece of him. Everyone wants to hear him, whether they like what he says or not. Now, I don't know if you know uh, the scene from Notting Hill where Hugh Grant opens his front door to be met by an absolute wall of paparazzi and fans, because word has got out that he's got a celebrity staying in his house. Well, I think something similar is going on here. It's a similar scene. People are crammed and, and crushed around Jesus because they want to see him. They want to hear him. They want to see what he does. People are inside the house and outside the house. There's a crush. The people who've come late just can't even get near the door. Everyone had to hear him. And he's teaching them. We read that he's teaching them. Maybe he's talking to them about the kingdom of God. Maybe he's, he's telling them similar things to what we read in the Sermon of the Mount. When all of a sudden there's this great commotion, bits of ceiling plaster start start falling in well a couple of years ago we had some we had some building work done on our house and during it one of the builders fell through the ceiling and into our bedroom it created an absolutely almighty mess there was dusty debris everywhere and in our story that we're looking at in this dusty messy chaos a paralyzed man is lowered down and you can kind of sense the mood if you think about it. Jesus is the center of attention. Everyone's come to see him and he, he must be leading this situation. He's in charge. People have turned up to listen to him. He's the one speaking with this authority from God. Everyone looks to Jesus. What's he going to do? How is he going to respond? What would he say? And finally, the dust settles. Will he, will he heal the man who desperately needs that? Would he ask him what on earth was going on? Would he, would he ask him who's going to pay for the roof? Or would it be something else? We live in a world where you can pretty much predict what people in the public eye will say. There aren't many Eric Cantonars out there, are there? The politician will regurgitate party line or, or maybe dodge the question. Sportsmen and women will give diplomatic, maybe inane answers to to questions about rivalry. Film stars will always tell us it was a pleasure to work with this other actor or actress or or a particular director, particularly if it's a promotional interview for a film. Answers are rehearsed and everyone's really well media trained and, and rarely does anyone say anything that would surprise us. But what does Jesus say? Does he mention the roof? Does he heal the man like we like we read uh, last week with leprosy? No, we see as we've seen a few times in chapters one in chapter one rather um, that he has other priorities. Verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, "Son, your sins are forgiven," and that should be quite a wow moment for us. This man clearly needs healing. It's the very reason that his friends have brought him along. Paralysis is an awful thing. It's a physical ailment that meant he was totally dependent on his friends and family. There was no welfare state, no national health service. There was no provision for looking after the long-term sick in those days. His friends were probably used to carrying him. It was a thing they'd have done regularly. They'd have probably taken him to to key places in the local towns and villages for him to beg. You can see that they love him. But he was, without a doubt, totally helpless without them. In an earthly sense, there was nothing that this man needed more than being able to walk. But it's not Jesus' priority not here, not now, not at this moment. Son, he tells him, your sins are forgiven. If Jesus had just healed this man and, and sent him on his way, then it only, only could have ever been a temporary healing, couldn't it? He would have been overjoyed and ecstatic with the healing. But what then? He'd have, he'd have got old, probably got frail and infirm, just like everyone else. And the brutal fact of this this fallen, broken world that we live in is that this man has been dead for about 2,000 years. And so Jesus sees inside to something bigger, to something deeper, an illness, an affliction deep inside the man's heart. Jesus sees the human condition, a condition of me, the condition of you. Peter Lewis, our much-loved former senior pastor, put it like this. Jesus has not come for partial healing, but for full salvation. He has come to deal with the most fundamental human condition, its state of guilt and condemnation before the judge of all the earth. He's come to bring forgiveness of sins and a way back to God's. The way to eternal life and a new heavens and a new earth in which the signs of the fall and the brokenness that sin has brought will be taken away. It would have meant nothing if this man was able to walk and yet remained an enemy of the loving creator of the universe, the one that we were designed to be in a relationship with. Friends, this world is broken. Sometimes it it seems that sickness and death just reign. Sometimes we're simply overwhelmed by sorrow. Well, the wonderful news is that Jesus did come to heal the brokenness in the world. He came to put an end to the death and the mourning and the crying and the pain. He cares. And we'll see in a moment that he sent the man away well. But his long-term, eternal plan for dealing with the brokenness and the suffering in the world is by dealing with sin. Who is this man? That's the question that we're asking as we're working through the, the first two or three chapters of Mark. We've already seen that he has authority over sickness, He has authority over people, as he calls his disciples, to him. And now we see he has authority over sin itself. He has authority over this very problem of humanity. Verse 6 says, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, these teachers or these Pharisees, as they were later referred to, uh, were amazingly zealous for God. Let's not forget that. They claimed to stand for truth. They were teachers of God's law. They knew their stuff. And they knew that a claim to forgive sin was a blasphemous one. one, one equal to a claim to be God himself. They knew that only the harmed party can offer real forgiveness. And so only God can offer forgiveness from sin because all sin is at heart a crime against the Almighty God. And The Pharisees are outraged. Yeah, they know their Old Testament law, and according to that, forgiveness had to involve priests in temples offering sacrifices. And the nation of, the nation of Israel was built upon these very things. It was part of their national identity, And if what Jesus said was true, if his claim to forgive sins was was a true one, then he was tearing all of that down. He was leading the people away from from everything that they held dear. But we remember that the writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, the law, that that thing that, that the Pharisees held so very strongly to, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. And then later in that that same chapter, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, no longer does God dwell in one specific place on earth, the temple. Jesus is the great high priest overall, and he's not dependent on human priests. You don't need John or Colin or Rue to help you have your sins forgiven. You don't need the Pope or the Archbishop of Canterbury. You just need Jesus. And when it comes to sacrifices, animals just don't cut it. They were there. They were there to point the people to something greater. Jesus offers himself for us so that his pronouncement of sins forgiven to this man might be more than just mere words. Who are you to say this is the gist of what the Pharisees are saying. Who is he? Who is this man? Verse eight, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. The problem with Jesus' words is that there's no external verifiable evidence that this man's sins have actually been forgiven, is there? The very claim is blasphemous because only God can do that. But what if, what if he actually had forgiven the man? If he actually had the authority to do it? Well, that, that really would be something, wouldn't it? And Jesus knows this, so he heals the man. He gives pretty compelling evidence that he has power from God. He shows that his claim to have authority on earth to forgive sins is a true claim. He performs a miracle that everyone can see the healing of this man who couldn't walk in order to demonstrate that he is also able to perform a miracle that we cannot see and is arguably greater, that is to forgive sins. But look also what he says, look carefully with me at verse 10. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he gives this gives himself this title, the Son of Man. Now, if you remember where we opened the service this evening, we read from Daniel chapter seven, Daniel's vision of this, this heavenly throne room. He's showing that the Pharisees he's showing the Pharisees that, that when it comes to really understanding the Old Testament, he's the one. He's not just the most learned one, but the one of whom the scriptures speak. In this vision from Daniel 7, this, this one like a son of man approaches the almighty God, the, the ancient of days. What a wonderful, wonderful name for our God, the ancient of days. Dan, Daniel, Daniel tells us how the son of man approaches the ancient of days and is given authority, glory and sovereign power and everyone worships. These words of Jesus in Mark's gospel put himself in this vision. And Jesus is claiming the authority of which it speaks. Verse 14 of that that Daniel chapter 7 says, All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed And so we ask, who is this man? This carpenter from Nazareth, this preacher who claimed to be able to forgive sins. You can see why the Pharisees were rattled. Who is this man? Jesus, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And the question for us really is, what's our response? What do we make of it? And as we read on, we'll we'll see two groups of people. We'll see their reaction to Jesus. On one hand, we'll see Levi and the tax collectors. On the other hand, we'll see the Pharisees. Maybe Levi, the tax collector, was present when, when Jesus did this miracle we've just read about. We don't know. We do know that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were there. I think Mark includes the next episode that we read about. To help us to see these two different responses to the preaching of Jesus and the events we've just worked, we've just read about. The events, the broken roof, the forgiveness of sins, and the healing. So let's read on verse 13. Once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me. Jesus told him and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, Levi, this guy was a, was a tax collector. But when you hear that, don't don't think inland revenue. Don't think of our civil servants who who work hard to make sure the Treasury collects what it needs to to fund education and healthcare and, and other public services. No. Remember that the land of the Jews was occupied by the Romans and they used natives like Levi as traitors against their own people. Tax collectors wouldn't have been wouldn't have been paid a salary by the Romans. Rather, they were expected to um, to charge their people more than was necessary in order to make money for themselves. And they charged their their people lots of extra. So on one hand, on one hand, Levi was a a successful businessman. And on the other hand, a, a contemptible, corrupt crook. But Jesus calls him, follow me. Levi would have been shunned by Israel's teachers. The Pharisees and the scribes would have barely been able to look at him. They were zealous for God's nation of Israel. And he was a traitor. There's something compelling about Jesus, isn't there? Follow me, he says to Levi. And Levi does. Levi comes. Who is this man with such authority? There's something about his character, his grace, his... His authority that is fused with humility. His his ability to, to know people and speak into any situation. His forgiveness. Jesus can call anyone. Jesus crosses boundaries. He goes to the poor and the weak, but he also goes to this successful businessman. He goes to the meek and the broken, but he also goes to this despised crook. Never believe that, that you're not the sort of person for Jesus. Jesus crosses boundaries. You know, this very same Levi who just ups and follows Jesus is, is later identified as the Apostle Matthew. The Apostle Matthew wrote, wrote Matthew's gospel. Jesus doesn't just call all kinds. He uses all kinds. This is Matthew's gospel read by by millions, if not billions of people through the ages and used by God to to bring countless numbers to faith. Written by Levi, the tax collector, this scummy, contemptible human being. And Jesus goes to his house for dinner and that's massive. The Pharisees are, are wound up about Jesus's claim to forgive. And now they're incensed about the company that he keeps. It's ironic, isn't it? God's forgiveness offers a, a restored relationship. If, if Jesus came to forgive, then surely he'd want to hang out with, with everyone. No matter their background or standing. But the Pharisees still don't get it. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Who is this man? And so Jesus gives them a picture to think about. Verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Look, guys, he's saying, you'd expect to find a doctor amongst the unwell, wouldn't you? You'd expect to find a forgiver amongst those who need to be forgiven. You'd expect to find a saviour among those who need saving. Why are you surprised that I'm here? This is where you expect to find me. And he just leaves it there. He, he doesn't unpack it any further. And I think we're meant to see how this statement, this, this description of the human heart is just dripping with irony. Everyone needs Jesus. We're all of us broken, wretched human beings. Like the man who was carried and lowered before Jesus, we are all totally helpless, totally dependent. But if I've got a serious illness and I just sit around at home and I I don't go to the doctor, I don't go to A&E, and I let the pain get worse, then it's unlikely to go away. The Pharisees were were so intense on doing good and being seen to be doing good that they missed the key thing about our human condition. The key thing that, that no one is good, not even one. We have to acknowledge this before we can get help. You first have to admit that you're not well before you can go and see the doctor. The Pharisees didn't acknowledge that they were sick, but they were, and they definitely needed this doctor. The tax collectors, the sinners, they were evidently sick and they knew it. They flocked to see Jesus because he gave them something that no one else could, forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. Jesus is the doctor that everyone needs. Well, I think that sometimes we, certainly I, um, can nod uh, and agree that that sin is the problem out there in the world. I flick through the BBC website and and read the news stories on there, and I I nod and I, well, you know, conclude that, that sin is the problem that is out there. And yet I fail to see that sin is the problem in here. Verses 13 to 17, that second part of the passage we've looked at, show the two responses to Jesus' offer of forgiveness. Firstly, there's Levi's response. I need this offer of forgiveness. And secondly, there are the Pharisees. I'm good enough. I don't need this offer of forgiveness. And I wonder where we are this evening with that. We should all be Levi aware of our own sin, coming broken to Jesus every day. But all too often, we're we're the self-righteous Pharisees. The Pharisees were very good at being good. They were devout and God-fearing. We often say that you can tell someone's commitment to the Lord by looking at their diaries and their bank accounts. Well, the devotion of, uh, of the Pharisees to God certainly touched their pockets and their time would have been completely devoted to, to things of service. In modern day Cornerstone, this would probably look, at, look like someone who is tithing and, and then some more. It would probably look like making sure they were always there at the, the 6.30 prayer meeting every single week. They'd be there on the, on the Zoom prayer meeting at 6.30, uh, sorry, on a, on a Wednesday morning. They'd be, they'd be the first people at Connect Group every week uh, without fail. They may well be in the band or they may well be uh, stood where I'm stood. I need to pause it. Um, we'll just keep going. Okay, thanks, John. Yeah. Okay. so they may well be in the band or, or stood where I'm stood they'd certainly be at the OMF prayer meeting they'd be at mission prayer certainly we can get so caught up uh, in serving or, or doing the right thing that we, that we miss the saviour and we forget our need I think sometimes there they can be a sense that in our serving we're, we're looking to, to earn our salvation or Or at the very least, to make God more pleased with us. Well, maybe you don't really see yourself in the Pharisee's shoes, but you know you're not as bad as Levi the tax collector. That there's some sort of middle ground between the two. There's a, a local business near where I live that has the strap line. Let's face it, no one's perfect, but we come pretty close. You may have seen that written on their their vans as they drive around Nottingham. And and I I believe it's not a a statement about their their, their moral character, uh, but but a reference to the service that they offer. But I think that can can so often be our attitude. We know, we know theologically that we are sinful. Uh, we We can give the right answer to that question. We've tasted salvation. We've come to Jesus and experienced forgiveness but we also kind of think we're better than a lot of people. Jesus just totally blows this apart. The healthy don't need a doctor, he says. It's the sick that need a doctor. If you need Jesus, then you're sick. If you're sick, then you need Jesus. As sick and as helpless as the man lowered down through the roof. But what are the, the hallmarks of a of a genuine acceptance of Jesus? What does this Levi-like faith look like? What should our response be if we we really understand that Jesus has come to save sinners like us? Well, I think verse 12 gives us a, a bit of a clue. Verse 12 says, This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Praise, friends joyful praise that's the hallmark of a real faith in god sometimes this comes easily sometimes it's a a natural heart response to the gospel we feel it sometimes when we sing when we open god's words when we let the truth of the good news permeate deep into our souls when we meditate on the fact that our lives are hidden with Christ in God and that in him we live and breathe and have our being. But other times, other times joy can be hard. An older Christian uh, who I respect a lot, uh, a brother in this church, who's mature in faith, wholehearted in his service to the Lord and humble before his Christian brothers and sisters, He tells me that for him, joy can be a real battle. For you, it it could be a real battle because of illness or a variety of things. It could be a a physical or a mental illness. But, But keep going and keep looking to those eternal promises of Jesus. To praise is a command, even though it's difficult. We've been looking at the Psalms recently in, the morning, in our morning services. And Psalm 103, I, I think Rue was preaching on it as I was doing some of the work for this sermon. It really struck me. It commands us, it calls us to praise. And one of the reasons it gives are that because Jesus forgives our sins and heals our diseases. Psalm 103 opens with these words. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives your sins and heals all your diseases. Contrast this joyful praise with the service of the Pharisees, the joyless Praise lacking, tick box service. I think if I'm honest, sometimes that describes my service. If it's you too, then then repent. Remember that you're sick and helpless. Remember that you need the doctor. Forget not his benefits. Let's pray. Lord, again, we praise you for your mighty word, cutting deep into soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Thank you that you have been active here this evening by your spirit. We confess times when our service of you has has, has been joyless or self-righteous. Help us to ponder the works of Christ anew the price that was paid to set us free and buys us forgiveness. May we come with humility before you in the attitude of the tax collectors, knowing that in you there is full forgiveness and a power in the spirit to serve you humbly. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. We're now going to stand and sing and then move into a time of communion that Ben and Abby will lead us in. As we do, let's remember that we need the doctor, that we bring nothing to our salvation aside from the sin that we need to be saved from. Surrender yourselves to the great physician. Let's stand.